Hey everyone, welcome to the Smart Economy Podcast, production of neonewstoday.com. I'm your host, Dylan Grabowski. In this episode of the Smart Economy Pod, I sat down and spoke with Jesper Johansson, the CEO and co-founder of Northstake. Northstake is building streamlined and regulatory compliance staking products for institution-grade investors and clients. Leveraging MPC and hardware solutions, Northstake currently offers services on popular L1s with initial plans to offer staking support for 12 networks. In this conversation, Jesper and I discuss the significance of MICA legislation in Europe, building businesses off of -of proof-of-stake blockchain networks, how Northstake provides secure staking services to its institutional clients, plans to launch an ETH staking-based alternative investment fund, and much more. Just a reminder, nothing said on this podcast is a solicitation to buy or sell any tokens, that nothing should be taken as financial advice, and that the host or guests may hold tokens discussed in any given episode. With that said, I really enjoyed chatting with Jesper, and I hope you enjoyed the conversation too. Hey everyone, welcome to the Smart Economy Podcast. Today we're joined by Jesper Johansson, the CEO and founder of Northstake. How are you doing today, Jesper? I am well, thank you, Dylan. Happy to be here. Yeah, I'm very excited to have this conversation. You have a really cool background. So I kind of want to jump in and maybe just give our listeners a little bit of a basic understanding of who you are and where you come from. So you studied at Copenhagen Business School for both undergraduate and your master's. And then after you started in IT consulting. So could you just share a little bit more on what your genesis was into the business and tech field? Yeah, I was fortunate enough to start at Novo Nordisk IT as an IT management consultant and um, spent, I think, almost four years there. Novo Nordisk is one of the largest pharmaceutical companies in the world, at least by market cap. And that was my sort of first introduction into technology and compliance, which sort of makes sense, I guess, later on when we talk about Nordstake as well. Spent four years there, almost four years with, with NNIT, and then uh, moved on to Deloitte, I think, which is uh, a well-known, uh, reputable brand. Spent o- also almost four years there, a little more than four years there, and then gone to Accenture in a sort of similar type leadership role uh, with Accenture Strategy. And I guess sort of throughout my career, technology and strategy has sort of been sort of the core, core focus areas for me in regulated industries. So you've worked heavily in uh, regulated industries. So I guess over your tenure of your career, you mentioned Deloitte and Accenture, and you're also currently alongside Northstake, uh, working with BioBridge partners. What are some of the kind of big picture shifts you've noticed in these fields as technology has advanced and you've progressed through your career? Well, I think, and, and maybe maybe even sort of honing in on, on blockchain as well. I mean, emerging technologies is sort of something that that happens as this community-driven thing where there's a lot of experimentation going on, and we try to figure out what to do with these new technologies. And once they sort of mature to a certain level, they get picked up by the Deloitte's and, and Accenture's of this world, where you start to sort of tap into that trend or those types of use cases that this technology enables. And basically, I think, or the way that the business model works for 
Deloitte and Accenture's is a sort of this fee-driven model, either the consulting fees or the projects that you do in order to sort of understand from a strategic perspective, what is this and how can it be used or leveraged by big corporates and enterprises onto sort of the build phase and and, and where you actually build up these, these use cases or technology platforms or even business platforms. And then they sort of gradually move into an uh, operational state where you want, and this is, I think, particular to Accenture, for instance, they then want larger sort of operational type deals where they can sort of push this. And I think you can think of that as an adoption curve, essentially, right? When it starts as a white paper or a point of view paper somewhere, then you are very early on in terms of the adoption of the technology. And once it becomes sort of a bread and butter operational type of work for someone like Accenture, then you know you sort of hit sort of a mature state. I've seen a lot of different types of technologies move through that uh, adoption curve over the past sort of more than a decade that I spent there. And in particular, with regards to blockchain, those types of use cases started already back in 2016, 17. Uh, there was a big, I think, uptake in investments into the field, but it was still sort of following the, the framework that I just laid out. It was still sort of a, the in the exploratory phase where companies were trying to figure out what can blockchains be used for and what value would this sort of drive. And I think in both cases, you could find suitable use cases and it would drive a lot of value. However, there was this underlying issue about what network to choose, i.e. what do we do about this crypto thing, (laughs) which is sort of inherent to an open permissionless and decentralized blockchain, right? Yeah, I'm really excited to delve into Northstake's solution for, I guess, choosing the blockchain network on behalf of your institutional partners and clients. But I do want to just like keep digging into your genesis first. So it's really great insights that you have from kind of like the larger enterprise Deloitte, Accenture type of point of view. But, you know, before we can have an advocate on the ground building companies like Northstake, there has to be that first time, that aha moment. So when was the first time you heard about Bitcoin or Ethereum or crypto? And then to add on to that question, what was your aha moment? Because the first time I heard about Bitcoin, I was in grad school. I saw the price drop like 50% to like $300 or something. And I thought, oh, this is cool. And then I didn't come back to the industry until four years later. And the genesis moment for me was when I got my first digital asset and I saw that I was earning some stake on the token. And for me, this was an aha moment. Like, wow, this is passive income. I understand this from a, an investing perspective. So that's what clicked for me. So when was your genesis moment with crypto? And then alternatively, what was your aha moment? That's a great question, Dylan. I mean, when I was working with clients on blockchain technology at Deloitte, we were looking at, you know, what can it sort of be used for, right? And we had to look at what are the sort of the underlying networks that can be used. And obviously, Ethereum was back then and still is sort of the fastest horse. Um, so you started to look into Ethereum and started to look into consensus mechanisms. You started to look into proof of work. I understood early on that you you know you had Bitcoin as well sitting sort of not in the vicinity of of what corporate adoption looked like, but it existed. 
but I didn't understand that proof of work consensus mechanisms. I actually find I know that's you know someone a cryptonator will kill me for saying this, but I, you know proof of work consensus mechanisms. You need to mine blocks in order to make the the network function and to secure it. I mean these things, these concepts were sort of okay. That's pretty in- interesting and. What can you then build on Ethereum? I was very drawn to sort of the utility of Ethereum more than sort of falling into the rabbit hole of Satoshi's white paper, actually. So once I sort of understood that you could have, you can transact value on chain, peer-to-peer, that's sort of was the aha moment for me and how that sort of could translate into economies, big economies being built on the blockchain. And you could sort of own a piece of that, right? You could own a piece of that underlying network. That was really fascinating. So I think the price of Ethereum was in, in around $300, $350. And Bitcoin was in around eight to 10, I think, eight to $10,000. And I went out and bought, bought some, both Bitcoin and Ethereum. And people were like, you're crazy, man. Bitcoin in 10,000, that's, you know, it's never going to go that high up again. And, and even with the theorem as well, right? So, but I kept it. I still have it actually. But because the thesis was, okay, this is a maturing technology, right? This is a maturing technology. You take it, put it on a stick, you chuck it in the closet, and you're not going to look at it for the next 10, 10 years. And if adoption sort of follows a normal trajectory, then that might be fun to look at in 10 years' time. If I were to just take a stab based off of the prices you mentioned, was this maybe early to mid 2017? Yeah, that was uh, that was early 2017, where I acquired uh, my first crypto. Yeah, and were you thinking then, wow, holy cow, this is this is a new network. This is my opportunity to kind of claim digital assets on each of these networks. Were you thinking then of building opportunities, or were you still just kind of wrap your head, trying to wrap your head around viewing these digital assets as part of an investment thesis? I think more the latter. I mean, for me. I was thinking about this, as you'll see a uh, sort of exponential growth in the adoption of blockchain technology. And if that's the case, then getting on now is great. And let's see what this thing turns into if everything grows up. And we figure out that there's some inherent flaw in, in, in blockchain technology that we didn't know of, then it, it, it wouldn't hurt that much, right? So it's like, okay, let's see where this is going. And then... But it also prompted me to sort of monitor and track and follow what was happening in the Bitcoin ecosystem, what was happening in the Ethereum ecosystem, the growth of number of developers, the growth of use cases, and sort of seeing how it matured to the point where we have Facebook trying to launch Libra in Europe, which is sort of a seminal moment, actually, for Europe in the sense that that's when the EU Parliament started to working actively on crypto regulation, right? So almost like four or five years in the making now, we have markets and crypto assets coming in in full effect in 2024. So that's sort of the, for me, some of the proof points in terms of how we see adoption play out and that blockchain technologies are maturing to the point where we will see sort of an exponential growth in that. And almost like a second point, a second proof point for me is that when you see technologies grow into, let's say, the mainstream or the mature 
you also see how I think some of the early stage investors and focus sort of change that, that that sort of focus changes in a way. So now everybody's hyped about AI and sort of pushing blockchain away. For me, that's not a bad thing. For me, that means that the next sort of stage experts in in VC invest investing and PE are sort of taking over now, right? For me, that's a that's a proof point or an adoption point that um, I'm actually actively monitoring. I agree. I see a lot of potential collaboration between the AI space and cryptocurrencies, especially when we start talking about AI models communicating with one another, implementing IoT. There needs to be a way for these semi-intelligent devices on the Internet of Things to be able to transact without the need for a human to authenticate a transaction. That's a really interesting point that you're bringing up that you're also keeping an eye on. But before we kind of delve into, you you brought up Mika, and I want to touch on your perspective on that. But also, I'm a proud Coloradan, and we have a very strong blockchain culture here and cryptocurrency culture here. So before we recorded, I, I mentioned that I'd always admired Copenhagen for the city's bicycle culture and the architecture. But I'm curious to hear a little bit more about what is the blockchain community like in Copenhagen? And maybe what's the receptiveness to blockchain and crypto companies in Denmark as a total? It's not a very big community, but I think it has to do with Denmark being a small country. When I talk about the crypto community and the blockchain community in Denmark, I like to point out two sort of key things, right? One is that you have Aarhus University, which it's outside of it's the second largest city of of Denmark, who consistently rank in the top three when you look at cryptography and blockchain, uh, sort of the scientific aspects and research done in this field, and the hashing functions that sort of connect all of the blocks on all of the blockchains in the world is this particular hashing function developed by Merkel Damgård. We tend to focus focus too much on Merkel, but that's actually a Damgård as well. Uh, Eric Damgård, who's a professor at Aarhus University. So he helped develop that hashing function that actually uh, makes all of the blockchains in the world work. Another very notable figure that you can point to is Torben Peterson. He's, he's a rock star in his field in Peterson commitments, which are sort of the predecessor to zero knowledge proof. It's actually the foundation for how you create zero knowledge proof. So his paper on Peterson commitments are quite well known. So those are actually two sort of grandfathers of, of blockchain technology from Denmark, from Aarhus University. At the same time, in Copenhagen and Nordstek as well, we work actively with regulators and the Danish FSA, our regulator, is very active in understanding how blockchains can be used and how also to govern them. The Danish FSA, whether with a sort of a handful of industry people from Denmark, have provided a lot of the input to the Mika legislation, uh, or the Mika bill. And Antema Kaufmeier, who sits on the board of Nordstek, actually co-founded the industry group with Michael Groner from, from Chainalysis, a fellow Dane as well, Michael Groner from Chainalysis, that sort of work functioned as the, as the industry group that provided input to, to the legislative process for Mika. Yeah, so, so that's sort of, it's a big community. You also have, and I think I, I always want to mention this as well, in Denmark, you have Rune Christensen, MakerDAO, 
the biggest and I like to say greatest uh, sort of decentralized stablecoin out there. So that you have that whole community as well. So yeah, it's it's a it's a small community because it's a small country, but it's a big footprint, I guess. Yeah, there's a lot of concentration for like thought leaders. Essentially, it sounds like that are coming out of the academic sphere, and uh, luckily, I think more so than in a lot of other industries, the blockchain space and cryptocurrency lends to allowing academics to kind of launch projects. Because this is the first time in history that an economic layer is baked into a technology. So that allows for just so many different types of innovative and unique ways for people to kind of make a splash onto the scene. So you briefly mentioned in that response and prior, you mentioned Mika, which, you know, me being an American, I'm worried about my own uh, regulation concerns and issues here in the States. So I feel like I've had a really hard time kind of keeping my finger on the pulse for what Mika means for Europe-based companies that are building. So I'm just going to add a broad question and kind of let you go. How has Mika positively or negatively impacted the ability for blockchain and crypto companies to locate in Europe? Well, it's, it's, I think it's all a positive, but I, th- I still think that you need sort of a general sentiment to change on crypto as a legitimate asset class in sort of the broader investing communities, if you like. But Mika certainly brings a lot of clarity, which then in terms bring trust. And it also brings a lot of legitimacy to blockchain technology and to crypto and to crypto projects. But before sort of diving into the core primitives, if you like, of, of Mika and, and what sort of this regulatory framework will do for uh, Europe, I think it's important to take a step back and say, why do we have Mika in the first place? And and what is sort of the purpose and aim of Mika other than just regulating this industry? Europe was sort of sort of missed an opportunity or missed the boat on the whole web two. If you look at the top 15 biggest companies that were sort of born out of Web2, Google, Facebook, and the list goes on. You won't see any you know, European companies there. The only one you can find is Spotify, I think, maybe in 16 or something like that, which means that Europe just completely missed the boat on Web2. US and Asia sort of led that iteration of, of the internet. And although it was prompted by Facebook's Libra, the sentiment in Europe was that this was an opportunity to sort of front run an opportunity, right? That to enable a growing ecosystem of Web3 companies, then you need regulation. You need you need sort of clear guidance. And I like to say that EU's greatest export is 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 regulation. <laughs> you can just think about GDPR and, and all the great all the great stuff. But it also means that we in Europe took the time to elicit all of the experience and industry insight input and sort of bake that into the legislation itself. So a lot of what is already standard practices are actually being put into, have been put into Mika. And that makes it for, let's say, someone like North Stake, we are a regulated virtual asset service provider as it is. And with Mika, we will we will have our regulatory status passport throughout Europe, 
which will make it so much easier to expand our business in the European area or the EEA zone. And on top of that, the legitimacy that EU regulation brings to the industry would also help mature all of the partners, counterparties that we have that will start with clients and banks and other type infrastructure providers, as well as sort of the ongoing dialogue that we have with regulators on what does the future iterations of Mika look like, right? So that sits in stark contrast, I think, when you look at what's taking place in the US at the moment. So as it is right now, I think that Europe is in the front of the field with regards to crypto adoption, some mainstream crypto adoption, but we need to sort of keep pushing in order to to keep that gap. Yeah, it seems when Libra was announced in 2019, that was kind of a watershed moment for the world when Meta was saying, this is something we're interested in building. And while it failed, I think it did kind of, it was the marble at the top of the snowy hill. And now we're starting to see the snowball form. So kind of getting into the work that Northstake does, which is providing proof of stake services, staking services for institutional clients. I kind of want to start from a 10,000 foot view and then we can kind of dig in and, and cut more into what Northstake is. Just from your general perspective, you talked about this earlier. You mentioned proof of work. I'm just curious to hear from your perspective, do you think that other consensus mechanisms like proof of work are adversarial to proof of stake or do you see them as a sort of complementary consensus mechanism? I'm a proof of stake kind of guy. <laughs> but but I do recognize and appreciate proof of work consensus mechanisms. I mean, there's a reason why Bitcoin is, I would say, the most decentralized network out there, right? And continues to be that. Then obviously we can fall into rabbit holes with, with staking pools and mining pools and and concentration and all that. But just purely looking at the consensus mechanism. If you can solve for the energy consumption issue, which I think you can, I see no issue in, in proof of work. And, and proof of work in that sense has, I think, some advantages over proof of stake, which I think is, is sort of clearly laid out. But you need to sort of figure out how to solve the energy issue. And there are multiple different ways that you can do that. And as blockchain and crypto adoption grows, I'm sure we'll, we'll find ways to run ASICs in a way that is not detrimental to the environment, but can improve, yeah, even improve asset efficiencies in sort of existing energy structures. But we focus a lot on, on proof of stake because that there's also a business model that ties into that, which sits well with North Stake. Perfect opportunity to intro into, can you just give us an elevator pitch of what Northstake is and also what are some of the core problems that your company is seeking to solve? Yeah, so Northstake was founded on uh, the idea that you need regulatory compliance service providers who can service institutional investors who have requirements that far exceed that of sort of a retail client. They are also bound by regulation and mandates and corporate governance rules that would make it difficult or challenging for an institutional investor to 
engage sort of the traditional infrastructure technology service providers that we see out there, right? And I think also just the idea of self-custody for a uh, institutional investor is, is just a no-go. I mean, I like to say that <laughs> if you invested, if you're an institutional investor, you have a position in gold, which you most likely have, who would then hold the keys to the vault? Or, you know, where do we store all of the gold? These questions seem silly, but that's basically what, what you're trying to persuade an institutional investor to do when you talk about digital assets, right? What mountain do we? <laughs> which mountain do we store our gold in? So what Nordstake does is that we operate the node infrastructure. We take custody of our clients' assets. We are a regulated custodian as well. On top of that, we put a lot of compliance systems that are designed to ensure that there are segregation of client assets, that assets that are being staked are not commingled that we have source of proof of funds on all of the assets that are staking with us, that there are no unknown or hidden counterparties, that you have one counterparty that you're engaging that's North State, and that our validator and node infrastructure is ring-fenced in a way where we are required by uh, regulators to submit suspicious activity reports if there's something funky going on. And in that sense, sort of protect the integrity of, of the investment long-term, right? That's sort of the core product of, of Nordstake. So we sort of package that capability into what we like to call regulatory compliance staking products because the majority of our clients, they don't wake up in the morning and think about crypto. We like to, think, like to say that they have 99, 99 problems, but crypto is not one of them because they, because they use... Of course, they use Nordstake. But what we mean by that is that most institutional investors have a background in effects, commodities, equities, so on and so forth. They have 99% other stuff on their balance sheet that they care much more about or more focused on, or takes up more focus. And the minor allocation that they're doing to crypto has to be done in a way that is, is not going to get them fired and that is held securely and in compliance with not only their corporate governance and rules and mandates, but also some general compliance, AML compliance and so on. So that's sort of what we deliver. So that's the core product. And we've, we've, we've seen uh, uh, so far a lot of demand for that, those types of staking products. A different way of thinking about staking, I guess. Yeah, as a big fan of hip hop, I really appreciate the Jay-Z call out there. Also, I think that a lot of times when it comes to cryptocurrency and blockchain, there's so much that we have to learn to be able to understand this digital asset class that's emerging. But ultimately, something that I think you pointed out is what the retail investor such as myself never thinks of. And that is, I love the analogy that you used with gold. If you're an institutional client and you hold gold, you're not holding that in your own vault. You're employing Loomis, most likely, because that's the largest custodial provider for, for gold in Europe, I think globally as well. So I'm curious, Norsec was conceptualized, founded in early 2022. What was it about the time frame in January-ish, I believe it was, that kind of gave you and your founding team the motivation or the kind of idea that if you went for this, that this is the time that it'll work? Well, it was not one thing. And I, 
I've monitored this space for years, right? And think, okay, when is a good time to launch a company in, in Web3 focusing on this? And there was like, oh, it was, it's, it was always sort of two or three years away, right? And then it looked like Mika would be, or Mika in sort of a preliminary form was, <laughs> the tech was approved. You had sort of serious signals on the merge coming up. You, we were in this raging bull market and there was a lot of unmet need from institutional investors to the point where, okay, maybe now is the time. But then we're also acutely aware of, or sort of a core premise of launching the company was that we wanted to create value from day one, right? Uh, we weren't going to build out a, a company in the garage and sort of, yeah, and then we, we wanted to launch immediately. And we had an opportunity with a blockchain project called Concordium, which is a Swiss slash DK based project. And we managed to secure clients and tokens to stake quite early on, on on that project. So that sort of became the launch pad for us to launch our our products and services. And I've sort of steadily grown grown from there. So in the heights of 2022, just before the, I think, the Terra Luna crash, I think we surpassed 80 million US dollars in, in token staking uh, with Northdick. Obviously, prices are very volatile. And I, I mean, we actually incorporate the company in, in November of, of 21. And if you look at if you look at the price of Bitcoin, that is actually at the exact moment where all-time high was achieved. And it's been steadily going down since, but we managed to sort of uh, grow asset volume despite prices depreciating, seeing great performance regardless of, of, of sort of uh, the bear market conditions that we've been in. And I think that's sort of um, that's sort of a testament to the power of proof of stake as a business model as well. Yeah, Lars from Concordia was also a guest on the Smart Economy podcast, so you're in you're in good company with Smart Economy Pod alumni. North Stakes Genesis is very similar to mine going into the blockchain space. I bought my first Bitcoin crypto in summer of 2017 and was just speculatively consuming as much as I could and getting as much as I could at the top. And then I went full-time into the space in October 2018, which was the exact bottom of the previous bear cycle. So I can... um relate with some of the trials and tribulations that Northstick has gone through. Now, I know that this is going to be kind of a very simple, you know, to many who are in understanding of what like custodial solution providers offer, this is probably going to be a simple non-question, but I do want to just ask this so that our audience can have a better understanding. How does Northstake differentiate from other staking entities like Lido? And how does it compare or contrast to other types of custodial solution providers for institutional clients? Yeah, that's a great question. The best way that I can illustrate or articulate this is, is to say that if you're a retail investor, you, you can connect your wallet and passive income anywhere, right? If you're an institutional investor, what you think about is risk management. And Risk management in this, I like to say that uh, institutional investors need a counterparty because they want to know who they can sue if things go wrong, right? <laughs> <laughs> Who's accountable? And that is very difficult to do if you try to counterparty assess a smart contract or a staking protocol 
or a DAO, right, a decentralized autonomous organization, how do you do that, right? How do you assess the risk? Who is actually sitting behind the smart contract? And that makes it very difficult for institutional investors to weigh in to this DeFi space, essentially, right? And that's what sort of Nordstick changes in a way, right? That is that you have sort of one counterparty focusing specifically on staking and long-term holds, as opposed to sort of a centralized exchange where they can also offer staking, but you have a lot of other things going on and that makes the risk assessment much more complicated in a sense, right? Because we take our clients' assets and we deploy them in on validator nodes. We can show them cryptographic proof of their funds being locked in staking. And this is sort of from the legal perspective. We cannot take, you know, rehypothecate their assets for other means. So in that sense, it's 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 fairly straightforward that we can provide the assurance that your funds are locked in staking. We are not a lending borrowing protocol in that sense. So we only operate nodes in a secure way and can manage that rigorous sort of compliance systems that clients need, right? You and I, we don't need that. We are happy just to self-custodize our assets, you know, save our seed phrase in a in a secure location, delegate to a node or a network, this kind of thing, right? But I like to say that if you're working in a financial institution, you want to go to work not being worried about where the keys, the crypto or the keys to the gold is stored, right? That should sit sort of well outside of of your sort of remit. And and of course, that's that's why you need centralized counterparties if you want institutional uh, mass adoption. Yeah, and I want to briefly just ask a moment. Can you just chill the accolades of your team what excites you about the team members that you founded north stake with and what are the skill sets that they're bringing to the table that really excites you to wake up every day and and work with these guys or girls yeah exactly i mean so we have three co-founders as well and uh, jesper matthias um whom whom i met at my time at deloitte spent a decade in deloitte working uh, in financial services he's an advisor to the world economic forum on blockchain adoption Luca Solini worked a lot in, in private equity, is you know, heading up our trading offerings. Um, and Emil Bai, who's our last co-founder, he's you know, a very accomplished mathematician and uh, cryptographer and, and OG on, on Ethereum development. He's one of the best smart contract developers in the world. And we've also managed to attract, I think, a strong team at, at the, sort of the board level. We have Christina Damsker, who's former world Bank and uh, International Finance Corporations actually, Corporation actually in, in Washington. And she sits on uh, a number of, of boards of pension funds and sovereign funds. We have Kavisa Gupta from the US, from Delta Blockchain Fund, who helped co-found, I think, Consensus VC and been a, she's sort of a regular on, regular voice on, on crypto in, in, in US mainstream media. Uh, we have Payam Samandi, who's um, who supported the Dai Foundation and MakerDAO for a number of years. So has Hans, Hans like Hofmeier from Coinify, who also founded this industry group with, with Michael Bronner from Chainalysis. So we have a really strong team. That's just a few of them. And that is to sort of bridge the TradFi and crypto 
worlds and we believe we sort of have you know one of the strongest teams in Europe at least to sort of penetrate that market or of sort of the long tail of, of institutional investors who will all need to adopt crypto into their portfolios and all have 99 other things on their mind than, than crypto. So that's sort of um, that's sort of the end game for us. That's a great board and co-founding group, I guess, of, of folks that you guys have been able to bring together. Uh, so thanks for sharing that. So from the personnel perspective, it sounds like North Stake is well-teamed to go to, to battle in the blockchain industry. Something that I'm really curious to hear about, how do you incorporate decentralized security systems like Fireblocks using MPC solutions? And also, I believe I read somewhere on the website that there's hardware ledger integration in some way. So how do you integrate hardware security and MPC security in a way that maybe a crypto native like you or me, we're like, okay, this is great. You know, I can understand these two sort of custodial solutions. How do you implement these decentralized and self-sovereign solutions in a way that institutional clients kind of buy into it and, and understand the services and the security that North Stake offers? I think by now, MPC is sort of the industry standard for how to operate sort of multi-sig multi wallets in a secure way. I know there are a lot of sort of uh, on-chain solutions as well, but I think for the institutional grade that we need, it also requires a level of documentation and, and auditing that we have achieved with Fireblocks. So Fireblocks is SOC2 certified or audited, and Nordstake is also ISAE 3402 type 1 audited. So those things sort of go well together. And we use Fireblocks to secure, you know, securely handle our, our clients' uh, assets. Fireblocks also offers insurance on the solution, which is an added bonus, especially in this space. It's hard to combine. For hardware security modules, a part of the flow uh, or the way that we operate when we execute the staking operation is by leveraging hardware security modules to store validator keys. Those keys are not as dangerous, so to speak, and they're not as sensitive as, as sort of what you would understand to be, let's say, the seed phrase, so your private key. But they do need a level of security in order to, to avoid certain types of, of attack. And for me, spending you know a lot of time in, in, in technology and management consulting, we approach, I think, our stack from from two perspectives, right? One is the sort of the security and audits way that corporations, enterprises, third parties know and understand. And the second is a security approach that is born out of how the unforgiving nature of, or how the unforgiving nature of blockchains work, right? So I think we 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 sort of balance in a in a very nice way the practical versus the more process-led type security that, that you'll see. And I think you'll see that Nordstake solution, security solution is, is on par with, with what you'll find in sort of traditional financial institutions. And our clients sort of praise us for the visibility and transparency into how we operate at that level and sort of providing the documentation needed for them to do the, the risk assessment that they need to do. Perfect. Um, 
I'm not sure if you're able to divulge specific clients, but I'm going to ask anyways. Can you maybe share with us some of your clients, higher profile clients? And if you can't right now, could you maybe just give some general types of examples of the types of clients that are utilizing North Stakes services? Sure. I mean, we can't disclose uh, who our clients are, but they sort of range in between family offices, venture funds, some private equity as well, investment firms, uh, also high net worth individuals. So that's sort of the range. And we have clients in, in Europe, Middle East, uh, pro- predominantly. So I think that's that's what I can say about that. <laughs> totally understandable. So kind of an addendum to that question, given all the calamities of 2022, you know, three arrows, capital collapse, FTX collapse from the centralized custodial sort of perspective, and then also to have a blockchain network like Terra Luna collapse, what was the fallout of these catastrophic events? Did you see a wavering in your client's faith in the asset class? Did you did you see your phone lines ringing a little bit less because maybe your prospective clients were a little bit shaken? What is just kind of some of the insights that you've seen from more of the institutional high net worth sort of uh, clients that you're taking on? We didn't see sort of um, a big movement with our clients or big shocks with our clients because many of our clients, they only sort of hold traditional traditional crypto assets by top tier crypto assets. And I know that at the point, at, the, the point, at that point in time, Terra Luna ranked very high on sort of market cap, but most of our clients were were just asking us to understand what had happened. As I said earlier, we do not engage in lending borrowing. We're not a we're not a lending borrowing. We're not a DeFi protocol, and consequently, we had zero exposure to to Terra Luna. So our clients also look look to us as a source of of research and insights on you know what's happening in the space. And I think it was, for us, it was it was it was clear early on that the math didn't quite check out. I mean, twenty percent yield on stablecoin—that's not possible in any 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 universe, I think. And we cautioned people to to invest too heavily into into that if we were asked. I mean, the majority of sort of traditional financial, sort of traditional institutional investors were just. Looking at us, you know, shaking their hands, saying, what, what, "What's going on in this this crazy world of yours?" And and, and I think with the blow up of FTX, that sort of cleared the headlines, right? Because something blowing up in DeFi land, okay, fair enough. But and it was a big hole. Yes, great. I know, big <laughs> the blast radius was enormous. However, I think it was it was the fact that FTX. You know, blew up or was exposed as a fraud. That sort of really scared a lot of institutional investors, a lot of the investors that we talk to on an ongoing basis, because it's sort of, yeah, that was that was. A, I think that was a, just a big PR disaster going on. And then once people sort of understood that this was a fraud and it was exposed as a fraud, then the appetite sort of for, for crypto sort of came back a little bit, right? Because they needed to understand that this was this was this was a major fraud. And I think I think for the US, I think US needs to have closure on 
that entire thing before you'll see sort of major crypto institutional crypto adoption from I'm not talking about sort of BlackRock and Fidelity and but you know normal funds, sovereigns, pension funds, so on and so forth. Too many sort of got burned on the FTX thing. We need to sort of have closure on that for I think this is the long tail of, of institutional investors will start weighing in. And obviously, yeah. And that's a lot of regulatory clarity in the need as well. But I just sort of the yeah, my two cents on that, I guess. Yeah, I agree. Um, there's still a, a big wound and we we don't have any closure here. But that's fair insight. It's nice to hear that, you know, once people realized that this was a scam, a fraud that FTX was doing, that it was easier for institutions to kind of look past that and start of start thinking about building again. So as we kind of wrap up and, and um, kind of zoom out, what are the proof of stake networks that North State currently offers services for? So North State currently offers staking on 12 different assets, although we have two or three assets that are not listed on our website yet that we also support. But it is Avalanche, Cardano, Concordium, Cosmos, Ethereum, it's Flare, FLR, ICP, eGuild, Near, Polkadot, Matic, and Solana. And we are launching soon what we call crypto staking products, which are basically sort of a composite or an index of sort of stakeable crypto tokens into one product where you can allocate using stable coins and then that sort of rebalances on on the on the monthly what that allows you to do is to still hold tokens but get a broad exposure through one investment vehicle from one investment product a crypto investment product in a, that earns yield based on the crypto assets that are taking inside of it yeah my genesis into investing personally was through index funds so i'm a big fan of indices so it's really cool to hear that this is a type of product that north stake is offering Wrapping up, and my second to last question, what are some of the next steps for North Stake? What are some other networks that your team is looking at? And are there other sort of indices for other blockchain verticals like DeFi, DAOs, or NFT that North Stake is seeking to offer your clients? So North Stake is actually partnering with crypto hedge funds alike and investment firms who are looking to build spot Ethereum ETF that incorporates staking. So we are happy to announce soon that we will, and maybe this will be the first one to say that we are working with a partner to get a alternative investment fund, Airborne, which will be Ethereum staking 100%, which makes it very easy for institutional investors to get a stake in, in sort of uh, Ethereum without sort of foregoing on, on, on the um, staking rewards. This will enable them to hold equities instead of token. And that's a rise of reason why that's a benefit. But we can't disclose yet the name of the product or the or the fund yet, but we can sort of tease out that, that North Stake is, is, is working on this. And uh, we are actively looking for partners. So if you, in your area of the world, want to launch, uh, you know, a spot Ether ETF, then, you know, or alternative investment fund, please do hook me up. <laughs> Well, you heard it here, folks. For the first time, North Stake is looking at a new alternative investment fund. So thanks for spilling the beans here, Jesper. 
This was a really informative conversation. And I want to thank you so much for sharing an hour of your time to come chat with us about your background, your expertise, and a lot of the really exciting sort of steps North Stake is taking to onboard institutional clients. I guess wrapping up, if there's uh, any way that you want people to reach out to you or North Stake, what's the best way? Your preferred platform of choice, LinkedIn, Twitter, Telegram, direct mail on our website, just uh, go for it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for for chatting with us, Jesper. And I'm looking forward to keeping up with the progress that North Stake makes over the coming years. Thank you so much, Dylan. Thank you for having me. Cheers. Well, what did you think of that conversation? I couldn't help but have a flashback over my time in the space when Jesper touted the significance of Libra's proposal to build a stablecoin project was announced in 2019 and can really be seen as a pivotal moment that kicked off institutional activity. And North Stake is one of the direct results of that momentum. A light bulb went off for me when Jesper compared institutional digital asset custody to that of gold and that institutions allocate a portion of their portfolio into gold, but rely on a custodian to hold the asset, just like they'll need with digital assets. And simply, as someone who has pride in their local blockchain community, it was really cool to hear Jesper tout the significance of his fellow Danish citizens and the contributions they've made to the cryptocurrency space. On that note, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Smart Economy podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support the show, please keep Neo News Today in mind when voting for your Neo Council representative as part of NEO's governance process. We appreciate you and look forward to catching you next time.